This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Frosch. Welcome to episode two of the Six Gun Justice podcast, in which we'll be pitting the Magnificent Seven against the Wild Bunch. I'm Paul Bishop, and writing with me is my co-host, Richard Prosh. Hi, Rich. Hi, Paul. Hey, gang. Uh, Before we get started here, I just wanted to remind everybody to be sure to swing by our flagship website, www.sixgunjustice.com, for tons of reviews of both vintage and current Western novels, TV, movies, and comic books. You'll also find author interviews and blog posts and much more. You can contact us by email at sixgunjusticewesterns at gmail.com. And now you can listen to the Six Gun Justice podcast on all the podcast streaming apps and services, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and many more. Okay, enough housekeeping. Before we go for our guns and get into our future, let's chat about some of the Westerns we've picked up since last episode. I know you had a story in a recently published anthology entitled Hobnail. What can you tell us about the collection? Hobnail and other frontier stories, A Century of the American Frontier is a hardback available from Five Star. It has an introduction by New York Times bestselling author Tom Cliven and stories from a lot of new and established Western writers, Lauren Esselman, Johnny Boggs, John Nesbitt. I'm really honored to be a part of that group. And it's edited by Hazel Rumney, who has edited several anthologies for Five Star in the past year. And they're all top-notch. Paul, you really should check this out. There's just a lot of great stories in here. Well, I did get a review copy of it, courtesy of you, and I have read several of the stories in it, including yours. And I can second that it's a very enjoyable, highly professional collection. So everybody should give it a try. Anything else you got? Well, I've also been reading vintage fiction from Brian Garfield. I have three, Vultures in the Sun, Sweeney's Honor, and Seven Brave Men. They're all from the Usual Suspects, Bantam, Ace, the vintage paperbacks we love. And I haven't read a lot of Brian Garfield, a few, but uh, I haven't read these, so I'm really interested in his take on the West. He gets so well known for Death Wish and other thriller novels, but I really think that he was at his best when he was writing those early westerns. Sliphammer is a favorite of mine. It's another take on Wyatt Earp and not a very nice take on Wyatt Earp. So he was really one of the first to get into that Wyatt Earp wasn't the good guy that legend made him out to be. I agree. I like Sliphammer much better than uh, than even Death Wish. I'm not a big fan of the Death Wish paperbacks, so I'm really looking forward to these westerns. What have you been reading? I've been doing a a bit of reading in preparation for this episode in particular. So I was reading The Making of the Magnificent Seven by Brian Hannon, which is far more than any of us need to know about The Making of the Magnificent Seven, very much into the minutiae. And then I read The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah, A Revolution in Hollywood, and The Making of a Legendary Film by W.K. Stratton. So those were kind of in preparation for this particular episode of the podcast, but I've also been busy on Amazon picking up some other reference works on Western TV series. So I've got Lawman by Bill Levy, which is the John Russell Western that uh, I really enjoyed. Rawhide, A History of the Television's Longest Cattle Drive by David Greenland. I haven't started this one yet, but it looks very entertaining. And Wagon Train, the television series by James Rosen. I'm about halfway through this, and it's kind of hit and miss. It's uh, very surfacey, but I'm glad I have it in the library. And finally, Wild Wild West, the series, one of my favorite television series. This is by Susan E. Kessler. 
I really think uh, this is one of the best of this type of book that I've read, so I highly recommend it. I also came across an interesting reference work called What Western Do I Read Next? A Reader's Guide to Recent Western Fiction. The copyright on this is 1998, and it has over 1,500 extensive entries of all the Westerns that were published between 1988 and 1998, which is a very strange time frame to pick. Why not one particular decade, but from 88 to 98? It is a well-done work, and I really enjoyed reading through it. The entries have not only the author, but of course the title, and then the type of story, whether it's a Western cattle drive story or a revenge story, who the major characters are, what the time period is, the locale, and then a summary of the plot. It also has other books that you might like connected to the one it just reviewed. So there's a ton of work that's gone into this. But the other drawback is because it's just a 10-year period, if you're looking at an author's work that's in this book, you're not getting all of their titles right. if they had things published before 1988. But I'm glad I've got it on the shelf, and I think it'll be a good addition to the things that we do here on the podcast. There are a lot of books out there that cover the vintage paperbacks, a lot of fanzines especially that will cover like the Foss gold medal books or the uh, the Ace books. So this sounds like a pretty good resource to have that's a strange niche in the history of Western paperbacks. Well, I'm told I fit a strange niche as well, so maybe we're kindred spirits. <laughs> There's so much good Western stuff out there, it's kind of hard to keep track of everything. But let's reach back into the past and talk about two acclaimed Western films today, The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch, both of which made an indelible impression on the Western genre, I think, each in its own way. I've really been looking forward to this discussion because I have strong feelings about both films. But to start with, I think we can both agree the films are classic Westerns. But do you have a preference of one over the other? I do. I, I think The Magnificent Seven is the superior film, not just for its story and characters, but for the film itself. That said, there's a lot to praise in The Wild Bunch and a lot to discuss. What do you feel the films have in common and how do you think they differ? Both films feature groups of disenfranchised men who have no true marketable skills beyond their guns. The Magnificent Seven are guns for hire, but they possess kind of a dubious moral code. The Wild Bunch, on the other hand, they've crossed the line into lawlessness, making them more desperate. There doesn't seem to be a chance of redemption for them. Do you agree that that's the main theme of both of these films? I do. The times were changing. The time frame of each film is the early 20th century, and there were things like automobiles, transitions in technology happening, but also the social structure. And that's probably the main thing, is that the social structure was changing. The frontier was gone, and the West had been settled. Civilization was apparent everywhere, and these men didn't fit into civilization in either film. So in The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch, you have them moving into a Mexican landscape, which was still a little more savage at the time. These characters are, as I said, disenfranchised. They don't feel valued anymore, and it makes them angry. But it's interesting that the next phase is the mob gunmen. So these characters did make a transition, even though the men in this film don't see it coming. So you're right, Paul. The films are set during times of transition. The Wild Bunch are contemptuous of change. Change means conforming, something they're not capable of doing. 
But on the other hand, the Magnificent Seven realize that change is inevitable. Their self-esteem is being rocked. Their guns are no longer in demand. They no longer command the respect that they once did. People are starting to look down on them for what they are. And if they haven't yet, they realize they'll soon be forced to take menial jobs in order to survive. In fact, as the movie begins, Vin Tanner, that's the Steve McQueen character, he takes a job sweeping out a dry goods store. Bernardo, Charles Bronson, has to chop wood for his breakfast. So even though they're important in their world, they are not finding their way in the actual world as it is. Right. They're losing their purpose. Being elite in a profession that demands a speedy gun or a rock hard fist, it's not longer enough to command any kind of respect or bend the will of those slower and less hardened. It's not a commodity they can market in anymore. Absolutely. The yardstick by which these men measure themselves has disappeared. Civilization has made them redundant. They were needed wolves at one time, but civilization doesn't want to have to deal with them anymore. Right. One thing that's kind of interesting, the Wild Bunch are very nihilistic in their perspective. They see no future beyond these dreams of one last job. They can't even conceive of their own destruction. Whereas the Magnificent Seven are stoic, but they're kind of resigned to it, how they have to accept what's going on, maybe go out in a blaze of glory as an honorable alternative to the humiliation of losing their status. On the surface, the basic plot of The Magnificent Seven is fairly straightforward. It's a retelling of the Japanese film The Seven Samurai, directed by Akira Kawasawa. The premise is a village of Mexican farmers would be prospering if the bandit Calvera and his gang, who leaves them only enough not to starve during the winter. But in Calvera's mind, he is benevolent. The farmers are nothing more to him than sheep to be shorn. So they get tired of this treatment, and the village wise men send three of the farmers with a paltry amount of money across the border to buy guns because they're going to fight back. But it rapidly becomes clear that guns are expensive, but men with guns are cheap. So they approach a gunslinger named Chris. Uh, which is the Yul Brenner lead character, who shakes his head at the few coins the farmers have to offer. The farmers tell him it's everything they have. And after a moment, Chris says, I've been offered a lot for my services, but never everything. And this code, minor as it may be, that the Magnificent Seven gunmen had, they do value things. It's a sly change of perspective. The value of a few coins is where the movie morphs into something deeper than the standard shoot-em-up. As Chris gathers six more gunslingers to his side, each brings a different angle on character and motive. They fight to defend the village, and it becomes a fight to define and defend who each man is and what he means in the world and what he's willing to die for. And with those bonus established for the Magnificent Seven. What's your take on The Wild Bunch? Well, Paul, The Wild Bunch arguably is the most violent Western ever made, a film that dramatically changed the genre for better or worse, which I think is something for each of us to decide. In a nutshell, The Wild Bunch tells the story of aging outlaw Pike Bishop, played to perfection by William Holden. Bishop and his gang plan to retire after one last heist. It's a railroad job, but it's also a setup orchestrated by one of their own, Pike's old partner, Deke Thornton, played by Robert Ryan. After that opening ambush, the surviving Wild Bunch take refuge in Mexico, and Thornton trails them, resulting in plenty of explosions, gunfire, and bloodshed. With bloodshed being the key word. And carnage. The film was released in 1969, and Peckinpah set out to show America what he considered to be real violence of the Wild West, and two, to use the film as a mirror to reflect on the Vietnam conflict. 
the thing with Sam Peckinpah is this was a film he'd been trying to make for a long time and continued to try to make throughout his career. He was a very confrontational director. There's a story about him going on a hunting trip during the filming of Ride the High Country. So he shoots a deer and he notes that the bullet went in the size of a dime, but the blood on the snow was the size of a salad plate. That's the way true violence is and that's the way death is. And that's what he set out to show in in film. He followed this theme almost obsessively throughout his filming career. The film prior to The Wild Bunch was Major Dundee, starring Charlton Heston. That film was Peck and Paw starting to explore these themes of violence. And he runs into a lot of trouble when he does this with the studios who are looking for a film that they can market, not a film that's going to drive audiences out of the theater. So he has this very tumultuous career where he's constantly battling with the studios who often take the film away from him in the editing process, though he never really gets his vision out there. But The Wild Bunch is the closest he comes to doing that. He battled with his actors, too. There was a lot of contentiousness with some of the actors like Ryan and Ernest Borgnine in that several times some different actors wanted to take him out back and beat the crap out of him because of the way he would pick at them and, and nitpick scenes and redo scenes. There's a story where actor had a plate with beans on it, and in one scene, there were 13 beans, and in another scene, there were only 10 beans. And for want of three beans, Pickenpaw wanted to reshoot the entire scene, which would take half a day or something. It was, you know, some kind of crazy outlandish thing like that that he would do. Make everybody crazy. And the thing with Robert Ryan in The Wild Bunch, if you look at the credits of that film, when they're putting the names up of the actors who are starring in the film, there's freeze frames of the actors in action when their names come up on the credits, except for Robert Ryan, which is a freeze frame on the butts of a bunch of horses. And that's what Sam Peckinpah thought of Robert he, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, he did that deliberately. He used a lot of that. You see right from the beginning, freeze frame, multiple cameras, filming at different speed, different kinds of editing, slow motion. I think the most effective technique he used is called the anamorphic process, where by using telephoto lenses, objects and people in both the foreground and the background, can be compressed so that everything stays in perspective. That's something that's now done with CG and nobody really notices it. Back then, it was very unique and pretty unsettling, actually, for audiences at that time. And then there was the bridge scene. Entire volumes can be written about filmmaking from that one scene. Oh, yeah. It's a terrific scene. Paul, so much of what happens in The Wild Bunch is paralleled in its box office contemporary Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The relentless pursuit of our anti-heroes into leaving the country, the violent end, the train action. But if there's a contest between Butch and Sundance's iconic leap into the river and the bridge explosion in the Wild Bunch that dumps Thornton and his men into the Rio Nazis, the Wild Bunch wins hands down. Tell us a little bit about it. So here's the setup. Thornton and his men are closing in on Pike's Bunch as they near the river. Pike's men plant dynamite around the base of the bridge, and as they cross with their wagons and stolen guns, obviously they hope to blow up the bridge so to stop the guys behind them. Well, Pike's man Angel lights the fuse on the dynamite. At that moment, ka-chunk, the floor of the bridge gives way under a heavy wagon wheel. The wagon is stuck. The guys of the Wild Bunch have to lift the wagon out before the dynamite goes off. You think it's going to go off too soon and blow them to kingdom come, but it doesn't. They break free. They get across the bridge. Now Thornton's men mount the bridge. Thornton sees Pike just off the bridge, stops in the middle of the bridge, aims his rifle at Pike. Now you're wondering if the dynamite's ever going to go off. Maybe it's going to go off too late. Man, it's a great scene. It's just so much tension and suspense. Fantastic. 
You can't help but wonder if he was influenced by Warwagon, mentioned in our last episode, where Nitro was used in a similar nail-biting scene to blow up a bridge to cut off the Warwagon from his escorts. But I think that in the Wild Bunch, that blowing up bridge scene is the standard by which every other major scene like that's going to be judged. In The Magnificent Seven, there's a lot of gunfire and death, but watching it play out, you're emotionally engaged in what happens. The Wild Bunch wallows and revels in its stylized violence. Rather than being engaging, the violence displayed in The Wild Bunch repulses you emotionally. But it also fascinated audiences even as it debased them. I think The Wild Bunch is a case of an artist taken over by his message. Peckinpah said his idea was to use the violence as a catharsis, to sort of purge the audience of violence by witnessing it on the screen. I'm not sure you know, where he came up with his theories, but he later admitted that he was mistaken after he observed the audience came to enjoy the carnage and, and people seemed to revel in it. And that, that actually troubled him later on in life. Monty Python famously skewered Pickenpaw's work in a skit called Sam Pickenpaw's Salad Days, where blood erupts all over the place. And I think there's a good point to be made there. The, the exploding blood squibs, as people flying through the air as they're hit, their shoulders and limbs and knees explode. In some ways, it isn't any more realistic or historically accurate than Roy Rogers. It's simply the kind of the other side of a mythical coin. And there's another big difference between The Magnificent Seven and The Wild Bunch. Each film takes a completely different approach to the collateral damage of the innocent, especially children. Absolutely. The Magnificent Seven takes the higher road. When the shooting starts in The Magnificent Seven, the women and children have been cleared from the battleground. It's two groups of rushed men engaged in trying to lead poison one another without involving non-combatants. In fact, The Magnificent Seven goes so far as to having one of their number sacrifice himself to save three young boys who he has been angrily trying to dissuade from foolishly worshipping him. It may be a false reality in the middle of a gunfight, but it's far more palatable. I think you're right, Paul. The way Pick and Paw used kids in the movie, I think, is overlooked. One of my concerns in life is the way we treat our kids and how we protect them, how we throw them under the bus as a society when we don't want them. I paid attention the last time I watched The Wild Bunch. The message came through loud and clear. There are kids everywhere in this movie. Every scene of intense violence, kids are there in imminent danger, watching, observing, learning. The Wild Bunch actually starts out with this group of innocent little kids torturing a scorpion in an anthill. And of course, not to give anything away, there's a key scene at the end involving a little boy dressed up in a military uniform. Pickenpaw soaks the innocent in the carnage of his violent displays. And in some ways, I think he's trying to give us a message about the way we treat our kids and what we expose them to. In other ways, it comes across as callous and not caring exploitive, I think, for me, the word that I would look for. It's powerful stuff, this message, but I think it's way overdone. Absolutely overdone. Let's talk for a minute about why we think these films are important in the overall pantheon of Western movies. I believe it has to do a lot with the timing of the films when they were released. When The Magnificent Seven was set to premiere in 1960, United Artists, they were worried they had a bomb on their hands. At the time, major studio movies were initially released only in select theaters in major markets such as New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. And this was done with the intent of stoking the audience's anticipation for going to see the film. Instead, United Artists just immediately put The Magnificent Seven into wild release. 
absolutely guaranteeing dismal box office returns, which is what they were expecting anyway. They were just trying to recoup what they thought were going to be their losses. But the film surprised them. It did huge business overseas in the foreign markets. And even though it took time, The Magnificent Seven developed legs and wide release. It kept in theaters week after week after week because the audiences were still coming to see it, sometimes two or three times. But I think the biggest impact The Magnificent Seven would have on the Western was when it began being broadcast on television. It continued to be shown from its very first time on television with almost tedious regularity. It has become one of the most shown movies on TV of all time. All of this spread the deep messages in this film, which include a message of hope. Even non-Western fans couldn't avoid the numerous showings of the film on late-night television, so it became a standard and an iconic representation of what the Western could be. I, I agree. The Wild Bunch, on the other hand, became the iconic representation of all the things that a traditional Western wasn't, right? Mm. It, it was yeah. the fir first recidivist Western, nasty, dirty, violent, without hope. It was in your face, startling, yet somehow horribly fascinating. When it debuted in 1969, it was kind of a demarcation line between the last major traditional Western, True Grit, and all the blood, violence, and rewriting of the cowboy saga that was to come in the late 60s, early 70s, films like Soldier Blue, many others. You're correct. Between True Grit and The Wild Bunch, there's an absolute demarcation line. The Magnificent Seven is a transition in between the two because there is violence in The Magnificent Seven. It's different than the violence in The Wild Bunch, but it is also different than the traditional violence that you see in Westerns like True Grit portrayed. For that reason, these films become important because of how they change the Western. For me, it's an easy choice to make when it comes to which of the two films I want to watch. The Wild Bunch is ultimately desensitizing, sort of depressing, whereas The Magnificent Seven is Western entertainment really at its best. I'm with you. I'll stop and watch The Magnificent Seven anytime I come across it while channel surfing. I don't care where it is in the film. I'll just sit there and start watching because I know I'm going to get caught up in it again and again. In the case of The Wild Bunch, it's not that it's a bad film. It's undoubtedly a classic. But because of its nature, if it pops up on my TV screen, I keep flipping the channels. I don't want to sit through that again. It's also interesting to me that while The Wild Bunch did begin a trend of revisionist westerns that I think continues to plague us today with downbeat westerns like Hostels, its storyline didn't lend itself to sequels or remakes, but The Magnificent Seven was far more versatile. What do you know about all the different Magnificent Seven remakes? We know The Magnificent Seven was actually a remake of the Japanese film, The Seven Samurai, as we mentioned at the top of the show. But once it proved to be a hit against all expectations, it then spawned three sequels. The Return of The Magnificent Seven, in which uh, Yul Brenner did return to the role of Chris Adams. He had such a tumultuous relationship with Steve McQueen in the original film that Robert Fuller was brought in to play the Steve McQueen part. And it was an okay film, if not at the level of The Magnificent Seven itself, because we'd seen it before. But then you have The Guns of the Magnificent Seven, which is where Burke Kennedy steps in for Yul Brenner. And Burke Kennedy is a good presence, but he's got hair and he's no Yul Brenner. And finally, you have The Magnificent Seven Ride, which stars one of my favorite Western actors, which is Lee Van Cleef. It also has Stephanie Powers in the movie, but neither one of them can save it from really bad production and direction. 
those were the actual films that were related to the Magnificent Seven that tied to the franchise. But there were other films, such as Battle Beyond the Stars, which was the Magnificent Seven in space. It followed the exact same beats of the Magnificent Seven formula. The Seven Magnificent Gladiators, which is a sword and sandal film with Lou Ferrigno and Sybil Danning, which was basically the Magnificent Seven in the Gladiator arena. And this was done over and over again in many films, that the plot through line for the Magnificent Seven, this gathering of a group of, of individuals to protect someone or a village, became almost a cliche over the years. There was even a short-lived Magnificent Seven TV series. It ran from 1998 to 1000. And Robert Baum from the original Magnificent Seven actually appeared on the series regularly as a judge. But it was each episode stuck to the exact same formula of the Magnificent Seven plotting. And so all the episodes just became a variation of each other. There was nothing different there. And I think that's one of the reasons that it didn't survive. I know there was the actual feature film remake of The Magnificent Seven with Denzel Washington in 2016. I'm surprised it took so long to have that come about. Well, actually, there was an attempt in 1984. Producer Walter Mirisch announced that a remake of the film uh, was going to be part of his production deal with Universal. He had Walter Hill slated to direct, and Hill had been in talks with Robert Duvall to play the role of Chris Adams, the Yul Brenner role. But Hill's film, Streets of Fire came out in 1984, and it bombed at the box office. And all of a sudden, the Universal Brass backed off, and they canceled the project because they felt Walter Hill at that point was poison, and they didn't want to go into another film with him. Okay. Well, having exhausted our unasked-for opinions about these two movies, <laughs> what do you say we move on to giving our unasked-for opinions about what we've been reading recently? Okay. Go for it. So during the weekend, I read Champagne Cowboys by Leo W. Banks recently released by Brash Books. Leo Banks is a reporter who, get this, has won 38 statewide regional and national journalism awards. I've won two statewide journalism awards and saw the competition firsthand that Banks has won 38. Wow. Just outstanding. Now, the, the question is, can he write fiction? Well, there's no doubt about it. Check out our review online of his first novel, Double Wide, from Brash Books, which won an unprecedented two Spur Awards, Best First Novel and Best Contemporary Western Novel. And to top it off, Double Wide also won True West Magazine's Best Western Crime Novel of the Year. Looking to live up to those accolades will be the sequel, Champagne Cowboys. No pressure, right? Right. So like everybody else, I love Double Wide. And I went into Champagne Cowboys with a lot of expectations. I gotta say, it's terrific. Back for a second go-around in the contemporary West is Whip Stark. He's back along with TV reporter Roxanne Santa Cruz, former combat Marine Cash Miller, and uh, just a bunch of new misfit characters that are so clearly realized. You'll know them from your own life immediately. Banks has a real knack with characters and dialogue. With just a few short sentences, a complete personality emerges. It's set in a contemporary time frame, but this book is a Western through and through. Banks writes, That's the West for you. It's the home of second chances. Someday a woolly-headed professor of this or that will write a paper about why the Sonoran Desert produces more wanderers than any other landscape in America. Nobody will read it, and the desperate and dispossessed will keep coming. That's pretty cool. Like his first book, Banks' sequel has a lot going on, but I never felt lost. And it is something of a sequel in that, in addition to the main story, the book expands on at least two subplots from the first book, one concerning a 17-year-old named Opal Sanchez, one of Whip's tenants, and another concerning Whip's quest to prove his father innocent of the murder for which he's been convicted. 
So a solid recommendation. The highest. This is terrific reading for fans of crime fiction, but Westerns too. Banks is fast becoming one of my favorite writers. I read what can only be described as a spaghetti Western in print. Gun Glory by R.A. Jones is published by our compadres over at Airship 27. It's the story of a gunslinger named Jason Mankiller. He's a tough guy, but he's also got that sense of nobility about him, which makes him likable. He's also got the market cornered on the best one-liner since George Gilman wrote the Edge series. The book reads very much like a novelization of a rollicking Western film like Rio Bravo or McClintock, but I enjoyed it, and I definitely read the sequel. Now, it's time just to give a few shout-outs to those people who support our show. We'd like to thank our main sponsor, Wolfpack Publishing, head honcho Mike Bray, for uh, helping us get this podcast rolling. Thanks, as always, to Tom Simon and Eric Compton and their Paperback Warrior podcast. We also appreciate the publishers and authors who have been kind enough to send us review copies of their latest Westerns. And thanks to you for listening. We've barely been gratified by the response. Our preview episode and our official episode one have seemed to hit a chord, and there's been a lot of plays and listens and feedback, and we're very grateful for that. Please hit us up on email to let us know what you think. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please check out the Six Gun Justice podcast Patreon page and consider making a donation to help us continue to bring you the best of the West. What do we got coming up, Paul? In two weeks, episode three of the Six Gun Justice podcast will take on the New West Part One, where we'll be talking about some of the more current Western writers who continue the tradition of the classics as well as bring something new to the chuck wagon. That's it for episode two of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Time for us to say adios. Until we meet again in two weeks, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your powder dry. We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by Wolfpack Publishing, bringing you the best of the West, including the Avenging Angels and Gunslinger series by A.W. Hart and many other best-selling Westerns, available on Amazon in ebook and paperback. <laughs>